Welcome to RUF. If it's your first time tonight, uh, we especially hope you feel welcome here. Um, it says it in your bulletin there, and something we try to say every week is that we hope you find RUF to be a safe place. Because uh, we want RUF to be a safe place for the convinced and the unconvinced alike. Uh, to come together and examine the truth claims of Christianity. And the way we do that every week is we open our Bibles together. And our, our practice generally, usually, is to work through a book of the Bible each semester. This semester we are looking at the life of David. So we're actually kind of in two books of the Bible as First uh, and Second Samuel uh, span the life of David. Uh, and I actually forgot to edit I got the right verses in your handout, but it says 1 Samuel 30. It's actually 2 Samuel 6 is where we are tonight. The verses are right there. It just says it says it's wrong. Um, it's a beautiful video I caught a week or two ago on social media of... I don't watch basketball that much, but um, it's of Chris Paul, who's one of the star players for the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, he's draining... He's not even draining a three. He's draining a jump shot, Okay. And he kind of leaves his hand up as he makes it, and he backpedals, and he stares down Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's the star for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he's standing uh, at his bench. He's not even playing. And Chris Paul's kind of backpedaling, and he's staring at Kevin Durant. And the beauty of the camera shot is that the camera is looking over Chris Paul's shoulder right at Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant's looking at him going, you're still down by 20, bro. Um, it's one of those moments like, what are you, it's like, it's like the guys that sack the, sack the fourth string quarterback. And the reason the fourth string quarterback is in is because that team is up by 40 and the guy like sacks him and he goes crazy. And you're looking at it and you're going, what are you doing? Tonight's passage is one of those where we look at David, we look at God, we look at this whole situation and we think, what are you doing? What is going on? Because David uh, comes out in this passage dancing. He wants to dance before God and to bring the ark of God up to Jerusalem. Um, But then he's trembling and he's hiding when something troubling happens. But then by the end of it, he's dancing again. And this time he's dancing with reckless abandon. We're kind of left going, what is going on here? Looking at the life of David this semester, something I had not heard before... Um, David, the account of David's life is the longest account of any individual in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible. There's no longer individual account of an individual's life than David's that we find in the Bible. And as we start to the, tonight, we start with David as king. And so the rest of the semester, David is the king now. Um, and as we go week by week now, as we look at David's life as king, you'll start to see Things start getting a lot more personal, uh, the passages and the stories that we read. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read Second Samuel 6 real quick. Father, we come to you, and we have your word open, and we pray that as we read it and as we hear it preached, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would speak words of truth and grace into our hearts. Father, it's only by the power of your spirit that this is possible, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for us all of 2 Samuel chapter 6 here. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. 
And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, not Macon, Nacon, sorry, uh, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought, out the, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You know, we're just going to end there tonight. Because um, that's, that's all we need. Um, so, verse 15. That's, this is God's word for us tonight. I want us to see three things. you got three points there uh, in your handout. I want to see the presence of the ark, the problem with the ark, and the gospel and the ark. Okay? Uh, so first is the presence of the ark. Why all the hoopla? Okay? Why is this such a big deal? David's got 30,000 people in tow. He's gone to get this ark and to bring it back to Jerusalem. He's the king now. Okay? Uh, he became king. One of the first things that he does is he moves the capital of his new kingdom to Jerusalem. And then he goes out and he defeats Israel's long-standing enemy, the Philistines. And see, something that had happened 30 years prior to this was that the Philistines had actually defeated Israel and captured the ark. The ark of God. Um, but now David's king and he's defeated that enemy and he wants to bring the ark to the capital. Uh, just a little history of the ark. If you remember in Exodus, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the book of Exodus, God delivers his people with signs and wonders out of the land of Egypt to meet them at a mountain where he gives them his law. And then he gives these meticulous instructions of this tent that they're going to build that they're going to worship him at as they wander through the, the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Uh, and it's kind of a weird thing when you're reading through Exodus, you get all this cool story of God doing all these cool things. And then all of a sudden, the whole last half of the book is about how to build a tent. And at the center of that tent is the ark. Okay? And the whole main purpose of this tent, and the whole main purpose of this ark, is that, and the whole purpose of the law is that these people, the Israelites, are going to be a special nation, a nation set apart from the whole rest of the world. But it's not because of their ethnicity, it's not because of where they're from, it's not because of how smart they are or how powerful are, how powerful they are. The whole reason that they are going to be a special people is because the God of the universe was going to dwell in their midst. And that's the whole point of the tabernacle. And it's the whole point at the center of it all, at the center of this worship, at the center of this tent, is the ark, this four foot by two foot box overlaid with gold, where we read in verse two of our passage, where God would sit enthroned. 
above this thing. His, his presence would be there, okay? So the Ark wasn't some magical artifact. I don't know how many of y'all saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Nazis are obsessed about finding the Ark because they think they're going to tap into something magical and be able to win the war or whatever Nazis wanted to do back then. Um, Indiana Jones saves the day. Uh, actually, <laughs> not really. He gets tied up and he doesn't save the day. Uh, anyway, sorry. So we have this Ark, the physical symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people. Exodus 25, verse 22, God tells Moses, I will speak to you over the ark, okay? And then we see whenever the Israelites would pack up and move camp, the first thing that would go is the ark. And the first thing that would get set up when they stopped was the ark and the tent, okay? The ark was kind of the Old Testament Emmanuel, God with us. Because of the ark, the people of God knew that God was in their midst, okay? Needless to say, the ark was a big deal to the people of God. Okay, so this is a bold, godly move on David's behalf because he is setting God's presence at the center of his kingdom. As soon as he dispatches his enemies, the number one thing he wants to do is to get the ark back to Jerusalem, okay? It's also a personal desire of his. If you're listening to the call to worship in Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David wanted this spiritual reality, God's presence in his life. And he wanted it at the center of his kingdom. He wanted to know God. Not just know about him. He wanted to know God and he wanted to be known. He wanted that at the center of life in his kingdom. Okay, so this is a good thing. It's a great thing that David's doing. So just to reflect on that for a second. Think to yourself, what is to you the biggest need in your life right now? What is the, what is the thing... That you think of right now that you say, without that, I am incomplete. Or, what's the missing puzzle piece for you? What is that thing out there that you say, if I had that, everything else in my life would finally kind of be cohesive. It would come together. It would fit, right? Maybe, maybe for you, it's just finishing college, right? You just want to get done. And so you kind of have this horizon, maybe for seniors that's a little bit more real than others. Uh, but you just, you just want to get done. And once I get done, everything else will kind of come together. Or maybe it's how well you do in college. And that's why you are freaking out every time you have more than one assignment, which is all the time. Um, you think, okay, I've got to do this. Uh, I've got to get an A or I've got to get this or whatever. Um, or I've got to have that together. Maybe it's just the, the validation of your hard work, right? Maybe it's the affirmation of a friend or a significant other. Whatever it is that you say, if I have that, everything in my life holds together. What David realized and put at the center of his kingdom was this. That the presence of God is the need behind every other need. David saw that the need for the presence of God is the need behind every other need. That the weight of all the needs in my life, we have needs. They're not inherently bad or sinful, but ultimately they can only be satisfied by knowing God and his presence in your life. That's what David sees. That's what David wants. David knew that without that spiritual reality, he was not going to make it. 
And the kingdom was not going to make it. The promise of the ark is that spiritual reality, the immediate presence of God. You know, it's one thing to believe. Look, we, if you come here every week, you hear the word grace thrown around. You hear the gospel every week, right? Hopefully, that's what you're hearing. Um, it's one thing to hear and to believe God loves me. He's gracious. He pours out his grace and mercy on me. But it's only when God's approval of you is more real to you than the other affirmations in your life. That you really, um, that it becomes spiritually real to you. That you're able to actually genuinely not care what other people think of you. Only when God's approval of you becomes actually real to you, can you actually not care what other people think of you. Can you actually not be enslaved to what your grades are? Um, Can you actually not be enslaved to the anxiety of whether you'll actually get through the end of this week? Maybe just the end of this day. David knew that if he had this spiritual reality, his joy in life would not be subject to circumstances. Circumstances change, right? Circumstances are rocky. We've seen that already in his life. That's the presence of the ark and the significance of the ark for David, okay? But no sooner has the story begun, and we're kind of getting this now, that We still have this huge problem, right? The problem of the ark. It's kind of glaring. It kind of slaps us in the face. You know, the story begins well and good enough, but very quickly it turns out. you got to imagine the scene, right? This is like a Mardi Gras parade. I've never been to Mardi Gras. It's on my list of things I hope I never do. Um, uh, I've never been to a Mardi Gras parade, but it's like Mardi Gras. I mean, they're they're going crazy here. They're worshiping. They're pouring themselves out. They are happy. They're boisterous, right? And all of a sudden, this procession just grinds to a halt as they realize something is not right here. And not only is there something not right, a man lays dead in the middle of it all. Okay, this is one of those Old Testament stories where it's easier just to say, you know, well, there's that Old Testament crazy God. We can just kind of move along to something else, right? We don't want to dwell on the story because when we dwell on the story, we have to look long and hard at verse 7. That a guy reaches out his hand to, to steady the ark, to keep it from falling, to keep it from getting dirty. And we read in verse 7 that the anger of the Lord was kindled. It burned against Uzzah. And not only that, God struck him down. Now, side note, who would make this up? Um, seriously, if you're wanting to like get this cause and this God that you want people to follow, why would you tell this story? You're not being honest if this story doesn't mess with you. You're not being honest if this story doesn't bother you a little bit, right? If you brought a friend tonight, you're thinking, man, I hope Elliot digs us out of this hole. This story messes with us, y'all. Uzzah was a good guy. The ark had been in his dad's house for a long time. Him and his brother are just trying to help the procession along. We want to get the ark to Jerusalem. We're happy. What's going on here? What do we do with this? Well, some context first. And here's the context. God had laid out some very specific instructions regarding the ark. No touching, no looking, 
No carts, even. There were golden rings etched in um, as a part of this ark where poles were supposed to be slid through so that the thing would be carried on poles. It was not supposed to be traveled with on a, on a cart, okay? And only Levites were supposed to do that. And uh, Uzzah and his brother are not Levites. In Numbers 4, as God's kind of laying out all these instructions, he says this, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. God clearly laid that out. And it's clear in the story, Uzzah is not the only one that breaks the rules. The, none of the rules are being followed. It's not being carried by Levites. It's not being carried on a pole. It's not covered, probably. Okay? And isn't that just God being irritable and cranky? It's like, okay, they, they disrupted some rules. And God's just going to burst out like this. But why were there rules? It's Numbers 4. God said... Don't touch the holy things so that they will not die. The rules were because God didn't want them to die. But why the rules? So why the rules? Why does Uzzah die? If all the rules had been broken, David broken them too. He's the one that's ordered this and has not been careful about how it's done. And then, so is this some power trip by God? But actually, we see God preaching a very clear message. And it's this. David, I want to be in your midst. But your sin is serious and it separates you from me. That is the story of the ark. That is the problem of the ark. The ark itself is a symbol of this truth. It represents God's presence with his people. But only one person one time a year could actually even go into the presence of it the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And when he went into it, he had to go in for the express purpose of sprinkling blood on it. What is all this telling us? It's telling us that our sin is much worse than we think. Not only is our sin much worse than we think, that God is much more serious about our sin than we think. It's not because God's mean. It's not because God's cranky. It's because God is holy. They cannot touch the holy things lest they die. I'm holy and your sin separates you from me. The reality of his holiness is that he destroys sin. He must. And I think that this is is the only kind of analogy I can think of. No one, when you go into a dark room and you turn on the lights, no one says, man, why did the light do that to the dark like that? Why? Why? Because that's the nature of light, is it not? To dispel darkness. God is holy. It is His nature to dispel sin. It cannot come into His presence. And He had been clear about this. Do you notice that it's just kind of, as it reads, it's just kind of Uzzah's instinct to put out His hand. Who wouldn't have done that? You kind of feel that, right? That's probably why the passage disturbs us even more. Who wouldn't have done that? Like, oh no, I don't want the ark to drop. His instinct was to think that the dirt would defile the ark. But what was completely absent from his mind was the thought that his hand would. He had no concept, it seems, that his hand would defile the ark. Uzzah doesn't just break a rule. He violates the very nature of coming into God's presence. And even his best efforts could not stand. 
Here's the thing, y'all. None of us wants a God like this. None of us wants a God like this. David, what's his response? He doesn't want a God like this. He's angry. And soon his anger gives way to fear, right? See, David went to get the ark and he went with a certain confidence. He went with certain expectations of how this whole thing would go. But pretty soon he's face to face with the holiness of God. And he realized God is not playing along. You see, y'all, God's holiness strips us of whatever we thought it was that was holding us together. God's holiness strips us of what we thought it was that made us okay. We all have that something. For the athlete, it's his strength, right? For the dancer, it's her legs. For the musician, it's his or her skill, right? We all have that something that we think holds us together. And we all have that something that in the presence of God's holiness, it fades away. George Whitfield. Uh, he, 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 took, he took this up by talking about the difference between a Christian, true Christian and a lost Pharisee. And this is what he said. He said, the difference between a true Christian and a lost Pharisee is that the Pharisee only repents of his sins. But the Christian repents of his righteousness. What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? The Pharisee, what he's saying is the Pharisee only feels bad for the things that he has done wrong. And he's only concerned with the things that he's done wrong. But the true Christian is also concerned about the things that he thinks he's done right. The Christian repents even of those things when he thinks those things make him okay. The Christian repents of everything they are because they know that everything they are cannot stand in the presence of God's holiness. We have to ask ourselves, when is the last time God's holiness touched you? When is the, better yet, when is the last time God's holiness disturbed you? I think most everybody in this room, most everybody in this room, would say they want to see God at work in their lives, right? That's what David wanted. That's all David wanted. Most of you would say you want God to change you. But what if that requires the stripping away of everything you thought was holding you together? Some of you struggle so much to see God in your life. Could it be that God doesn't do much for you because you don't think he really needs to? You haven't come face to face with his holiness. David gets it. And in verse 9, he says, how then can the ark of the Lord come to me? How will it? It's a problem. There's a problem here. The third and final thing is this. There's gospel in the ark. There's good news in the ark, okay? So David and his company, they go home, and they just leave the ark with Obed-Edom. You kind of get the feeling that, like, where they stop in the road is at Obed-Edom's house. And so they're just kind of like, here, you take it, we'll go home, okay? So Obed-Edom, probably trembling, takes this thing in and takes care of it. But what do we see happens? The same ark that resulted in the death of Uzzah brings abundant blessing to the house of Obed-Edom. 
And God again sends a message to David. And what is he saying? He's saying, David, my intention is not to, to destroy. My intention, my desire is to bless. Okay? And David gets it. David begins to get it. What does he get? Okay? Again, some significance in history of the ark. Okay? The ark was at the center of the worship at the tabernacle. Okay? When I say the center, it was physically in the center of the tent. And there was a tent around it called the Holy of Holies. And God would dwell on the ark. It was called the mercy seat. Okay, but only, as I said, only the high priest would go in. And only he could go in once a year. On the Day of Atonement for the express purpose purpose of sprinkling the blood of sacrifice on the mercy seat on behalf of the people. Once a year, the people worshiping God with the reminder that our sin must be dealt with for our God to dwell with us. David gets it. David gets it. You look at verse 13. What does he do differently? And those who bore the ark, okay, so we're getting a clue that it's being carried the proper way. Before they'd even gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. He got it. He got it that for the holiness of God to dwell with his people, sin must be dealt with. That which separates us from God must be dealt with. This is why, y'all, the cross is so powerful. Because what the cross is screaming at us is the holiness of God. That we cannot come into God's presence unless our sin is dealt with. But at the same time, the cross is screaming at us boundless love and grace. Because what dies in our place but God's own Son. The author of Hebrews takes this up that it's not by the blood of bull and bulls and goats that Jesus has ushered us into the Father's presence, but by his own blood once and for all. David gets it. David sees, y'all, through a mirror dimly, but he sees Jesus. He gets it. And what does he do? He dances. He dances with all his might. David is filled with joy, pure, real joy, that though the way is barred to this God, this God has freely and graciously provided the way. He finally saw how the ark could come to him, and it changed him. I just want to bring this home with us. You know, there's no kind of dancing around <laughs> dancing uh, dancing around the fact that this this story may disturb you. it should disturb us it should and you might be asking why does god have to judge people you know we don't want to think of god like that he's too that's too harsh but let's just think of it this way if you run your car into a brick wall is it the brick wall's fault <laughs> No, it's just being a brick wall. If you eat nothing but fatty foods and you die, is that your body's fault? No, that's just your body being your body. It can't live off just fatty foods. The sin of Uzzah and the sin of all involved here, the refusal to take God as he is, it will kill us. God is simply being himself a holy God who does not take sin lightly because he cannot. And there's a lesson here. The lesson is to refuse to treat God as He is. Is to invite your own destruction. 
And no, God is not going to strike you dead where you stand. But if you refuse, take it this way, if you refuse to see that God is trustworthy, right? If you don't see God as trustworthy, you're going to be destroyed with worry. It is going to eat you alive. If you don't see God as merciful, when He says that He's merciful, you're going to be destroyed by your shame and your guilt. It's going to eat you alive. If you refuse to see that God is sovereign and holy, then you're going to be destroyed by pride and selflessness. Why? Because God is who He is. And His presence, His holy presence, is the need behind every need. We need it. But we smash ourselves against Him and it destroys us. The world, our hearts, our relationships, everything is built on the character of God. And He is who He says He is. He's holy and righteous. Wouldn't it be a lot scarier if He wasn't who He said He was? It's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, where God is talking about the day of salvation. And He says this, In those days men will no longer say, The ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord. It will not be remembered, it will not be missed, nor will another be made. Because at that time, all Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. This is what this is saying, what Jeremiah is saying, is that what David sees here, what he gets, though through a glass darkly, is what we have in Jesus. That if David was dancing... If David was dancing at what he saw, how much more should we be dancing in what we see in Jesus? That what this is telling us is that when Jesus died and when the veil was torn in two, God's presence really was unleashed in the world. And now that presence, the presence of God that dwelt in and around the ark, truly by his spirit does dwell in us. Jeremiah says there's going to be a day coming when no one will look for the throne of God in an ark. Because you, his people, will be his throne. The presence of God will be in you. No one is going to miss the ark. The Nazis are going to be sorely disappointed when they find it, like they did in the movie already. If you dig up the ark, you're only going to have a box and some gold. You'll have some gold. That'll be good. But none of it will compare to the free and unfettered presence of God in your life. So much so that Paul can say in Ephesians 1, that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in you. How can that be? How can I get that presence into my life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know what to do with your holiness. We don't know what to do because we, if we're honest, we know that it banishes us. It holds us at bay. It separates us from you because our sin has blocked the way to you. We cannot know you as you are. But you've provided a way. You've provided a way. You've destroyed sin. You've separated us, separated it from us as far as the east is from the west. Because you destroyed your own son so you wouldn't have to destroy us. 
Thank you for this glorious truth. We need it to be a spiritual reality in our lives. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.